If you have a copy of God's word, I invite you to open to uh, the epistle to the Ephesians, book of Ephesians, chapter 1. We'll read verses 3 through 14, this great doxology of Paul, but tonight our focus will be on verses 7 through 10. Remember, somewhere around two months ago or so, we looked at uh, we looked at verses three through six, where we saw uh, the blessings which we have in Christ in the heavenly places. We saw uh, chiefly that blessing of the Father's work in eternity past in electing and predestinating us to adoption as sons. This evening, we're going to see the work of the Son in history and uh, the work of redemption and restoration. Uh, And the next time we come to Ephesians chapter 1, we'll see the work of the Spirit, especially, um, as he works uh, to the end of history. So the triune God working all throughout the history of the world, each person uh, demonstrating one of these great and glorious blessings which we have in Christ. Ephesians chapter 1 beginning in verse 3 through verse 14. This is the word of God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us, in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, as we come again to your word this evening, we do ask that you would show us glorious things, that you would reveal to us more the glories of Christ, that you would appoint us more to him in whom we have redemption. We ask, O Lord, that you would do this for the strengthening of our faith, for for the glorifying of Christ, for the good of your people and your glory. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. June 6th, 1944. This is a date which I'm sure many of you, perhaps all of you, know the significance of. On June 6, 1944, the Allied forces in World War II launched an offensive 
at Normandy, France, for the purpose of uh, beginning to drive the Nazis out of France, uh, indeed to push them all the way back into Germany and to liberate all of the nations of Europe which had been conquered. June 6, 1944, uh, commonly called D-Day. Uh, if you are uh, in the military, I'm sure this is a very significant date uh, for you. If you uh, study history, uh, like I did in college and like I still like to do now, you realize this is also a very important date. It's very significant because this is uh, the beginning of what would ultimately be the, or the rescue uh, and the restoration of, of a continent of people from, from a tyrannical regime. Now, that happened in 1944, but it's not like it was planned just the day before. No, back in 1943, the Allies began making their plans to launch this offensive. And they, they made very meticulous plans. Uh, the tides had to be taken into consideration, so there were only uh, select portions of the month in which this operation could be launched. Uh, it was very specific when and, and where that they would uh, send the boats and when and where paratroopers would, would fly out of the, uh, the sky, jump out of the sky to, to land and establish a beachhead and everything. It's all very specific. There were many details to this whole entire operation that were, were crucial for its success. So with this whole plan... There was a very real possibility as they were, as they were planning it, even as they began to execute it, that it might not work. It might not. What if it hadn't? Well, thankfully, that's a question best left to science fiction writers and the like, because in God's providence, that wasn't the case. It was successful. The Lord, in, in his kindness and his grace to, to Europe, allowed the, the allies, caused the allies even to be successful in their plans and the execution of the plans in spite of, of different small, um, small-ish um, hiccups and the like. No, God established this and, and caused it to be successful. But as far as, as men go, as we look back, we see, okay, God established it. But at the time, and as far as the perspective of men goes, there was real possibility that this plan might fail. A plan for rescue and redemption might fail. Well, what does that have to do with the book of Ephesians? Well, as we look at verses 7 through 10 tonight, as we, we zoom into this one aspect of this great doxology of Paul so he just kind of goes on and on breathlessly about the, the great grace of, of Christ, the uh, great grace of the Father, the blessings that we have. Paul talks about uh, a plan that had no possibility of failure. Paul talks about a plan for rescue and redemption, which would absolutely, certainly, definitely be a success. While the Allies' plans could have fallen apart at any point in time, God's plan for the redemption of his people had a 100% chance of success. Because the Almighty God, the everlasting God, the one who, who established the end from the beginning, purposed that in Christ there would be a definite salvation for his people and a restoration of all things to the glory of God. And that, in a nutshell, is what we see here in these four verses, very briefly, that in Christ there is definite salvation of his people 
And there's a restoration of all things to the glory of God. With that in mind, I suggest that we look at these verses 7 through 10 under two headings, in two main chunks. Verses 7 and 8, we see that there is a definite salvation for God's people. A definite salvation. In the verses 9 and 10, we see that there's also a definite restoration. Restoration of all things through Christ, for Christ, to his praise, to the glory of God. So, a definite salvation, verses 7 and 8, and a definite restoration, verses 9 and 10. With those things in mind, let's jump now into the middle of this doxology and and see the riches of the glory of Christ presented to us in his word. In verse 7, we read this magnificent phrase, In him we have redemption through his blood. We have redemption through his blood. You remember, as we uh, went through this last time, and you remembered from just me reading it right now, that as, as Paul traces through all of these blessings, his entire purpose, his entire aim is to stir up our hearts, to stir up the Ephesians' hearts to praise God. This is, in fact, a doxology. And so with these words, in him we have redemption through his blood. It's, it's as though Paul takes a, a kaleidoscope of the glory of God, and he goes from looking at the Father and the glory of the Father and all the work which the Father did in eternity passing, he makes a little bit of a turn. And you know when you look in a, a kaleidoscope and, and you turn it, all of a sudden the patterns and the shapes all change, and you see something beautiful and glorious which you hadn't seen before. And, and Paul makes that turn and shows us something beautiful and glorious, another blessing which we have in Christ, we have redemption. Redemption, one of the central themes of of the entire scripture. Really, uh, God's entire uh, purpose with mankind. The story of the whole Bible is a story of how God was and is and will redeem his people. He redeemed the children of Israel out of Egypt and, and brought them into the promised land. And he kept redeeming his people, bringing them from captivity uh, during the time of the judges and then during the time of the prophets, redeeming them, redeeming them, restoring them back to Israel. The whole theme of the Bible was pointing to Christ, the great redeemer of God's people. Well, the whole point of, of the Bible, the central theme, the, the pointing of Christ's redemption I think a good question for us to ask right now is, <clears throat> excuse me, what is redemption? What is this word? This is a Bible word. I think oftentimes uh, we have Bible words in our mind and we say, oh yeah, redemption, redeemed. Yeah, I'm redeemed. And then as soon as somebody looks at you and says, what does that mean? You go, it, uh, it means I'm redeemed. You know, we, we, we see these things so often, we read them so much, we have our, our, our biblical language, but maybe we don't stop uh, and take a moment to think about what these words uh, actually mean. What is redemption? Well, simply, very simple definition is, is redemption is a payment, a payment to, to rescue or regain something or someone, a payment to regain, rescue a person or a thing. Helpful illustration for us 
So we seek to understand this, this idea of redemption. Is imagine that you have uh, an item, a toy, perhaps a bicycle, and it gets lost or stolen. You think, oh, that's, that's terrible. I really liked that bicycle. I rode it around everywhere. And then one day you're at a garage sale and lo and behold, there sitting right in front of the garage is your bicycle. You know it's your bicycle. It has all of those marks which, which show it to be yours. That scratch that you got when you took a turn too fast and, and hit the ground. You know it's yours. And so you go up to the person, you say, hey, that's my bike. And they say, well, it's sitting in my garage. So I think it's my bike. You say, no, I, I know that's my bike. I'd like it back. And they say, well, for $25, it's yours. Well, what do you do? You pull out $25 and you hand it to them and you get your bike back. You've just redeemed that bicycle. You've just bought it back. It was yours. It belonged to you by rights, but it was in the possession of someone else, something else. And so you said, well, I'm going to get it back. So you pay for it. You regain that item, that bicycle, and it is yours once again. Here we read that in him, in Christ, there is redemption for us. This teaches us, I think, a few things. First of all, the fact that in him there is redemption shows to us that redemption was needed, wasn't it? We needed to be bought. We who are God's uh, creations, God's by right have rebelled against God, were at enmity with God, his enemies, slaves to sin. And we needed to be bought back. Slaves to sin. Not, uh, not people who occasionally sinned, had a couple missteps every now and then, but no, the Bible says outside of Christ, we're slaves to it. We're in bondage to it. We're, we're chained by it, held fast to it. So we needed to be redeemed. We needed that, that bondage, that enslavement removed, bought back by Christ. We also needed to be redeemed because by nature, we are children of wrath. We're under the wrath and curse of God outside of Christ because we're his enemies. We've committed high treason against the king of kings. So we need something to buy us back, to, to bring us back to, to God's possession. We're his by right, and God, because of his great grace and love, says, well, I'm also going to, to buy you back, to restore you, to rescue you. In him, Christ, we have this redemption because of the grace of God. Well, my definition of redemption, I, I said that there's payment to be made. To be redeemed, a payment must be made. What is that payment? Is it gold, silver, precious gems? No, Peter says that it's not by any of those things that we've been redeemed. Peter, together with Paul here, say, no, it's, it's something so much more valuable infinitely more valuable that we have been redeemed by. The price of our redemption is the blood of Christ. In him, we have redemption through his blood. Through the blood of Christ. 
Why is, why is this payment necessary? Why couldn't it be something like, like gold or silver? Why couldn't it be our own good works? You remember that the scripture says that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And so it required the shed blood of Christ to be our redemption price. Furthermore, our sin against God, this, this act of, of cosmic treason, is committed against an infinite God. Now, all of God's uh, attributes uh, describe all of his other attributes. So God is infinite, which means God is infinitely good. It means that he is infinitely righteous, infinitely holy, infinitely just. Now, when you sin against such a God, your sin has infinite repercussions, doesn't it? You might think, well, that's a very small sin, but to a God who is, who is infinitely holy and, and just and righteous and perfect and cannot countenance any sin, that little small sin that you think is no big deal is actually quite a big deal. It is enough to warrant eternal punishment on your part. And so if we have committed a sin, infinite in, in, in its, its uh, need for, for justice, we must have an infinite payment on our behalf. And Christ, the one who is perfect, who is God himself, infinite in all of his attributes, paid that price for us the perfect spotless lamb of God who lives forever and ever, who is infinite, has shed his blood for us as the payment for our sins to redeem us for himself. <coughs> that is such good news. That is wonderful news. All of the sins which you have committed. If you trust in Christ, they are all taken care of, from the least to the greatest. You cannot sin a sin so big that God cannot forgive you because the blood of Christ is infinite in value. There's a lot of very wealthy people these days. I don't know who the wealthiest man on earth is, Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos or whoever. They can buy a lot of things. They can buy whatever car they want. They could buy a really nice yacht. They can buy your favorite sports team. They can never buy the redemption which they need. But here's some more good news. This redemption, so infinite in value, is offered freely. You don't have to earn it by your own good deeds. You don't have to pay for it with, with money gold, with gems, with anything like that. Christ offers it to you freely. He says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Come to me. There is abundant forgiveness in me. Trust in me. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. There is an infinite amount of forgiveness in Christ because of this redemption, which he paid through his blood. And speaking of infinite forgiveness, Paul continues here. He could have stopped with just redemption in his blood, and that would have been 
glorious news enough for us this evening, and I think I probably could have preached an entire sermon just on that. But Paul continues that we also have forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, and the verse 8, which he lavished upon us. There's, there's a little word here, which is pretty amazing, uh, in verse 7. It's the word have. It's the word have. We have redemption. We have forgiveness of our trespasses, the forgiveness of our sins. Paul doesn't write that we had it in the past. That at one point in time, you know, you had redemption, but then you lost it. You know, at one point in time, or perhaps in the future, you could have it, but then you might lose it. No, he uses the present tense here, indicating that we have it currently, and that it, it is running in a, a perpetual currentliness. That's not a word, but it is always current. You always have, if you are trusting in Christ, redemption through the blood of Christ. You always have forgiveness of your sins. It's a constant. We have forgiveness of sins now in Christ if we trust in him. Now, right now. And that is a little word, but glorious because it tells us of, of just the riches and the glory of God's grace in Christ. Speaking of riches and glory, this forgiveness which we have is according to the riches of God's grace, which he lavished upon us. You know, God's grace is an infinite grace because, as I said, all of God's attributes uh, define all of his other attributes. So if God is an infinite God and God is a gracious God, then God is a God of an infinite grace. So if, if our forgiveness is according to the riches of his grace. It means that there is an infinite store of forgiveness for us. It's not like God runs out of forgiveness to give us. You remember that Christ uh, told us that we are to forgive, uh, you know, uh, 70 times, seven times. And if you ever watched Veggie Tales, as I did when I was a child, you know that that equals 490 um, because the little grape says so. Um, and if, you mathematicians know I think that's correct. But Christ isn't saying that we're only supposed to forgive 490 times and then on the 491st time we stop forgiving. He's saying, keep forgiving. Why is that? It's because God is a God who keeps forgiving. God doesn't forgive us 490 times and then say, well, that's it, no more forgiveness. He continues to forgive and continues to forgive and continues to forgive because he is God of infinite forgiveness and grace, and he lavishes that upon us. It's poured out in abundance. Imagine that you have a cup in front of you, and you start pouring liquid into it. And at some point in the pouring of liquid, uh, that liquid gets to the top of the cup. And you're probably going to stop pouring then, because you don't want to make a mess. But if you keep pouring, it'll overflow the top of the cup. And the more you keep pouring, the more it's going to overflow. And that is a picture of what God's grace and forgiveness and mercy are to us. It's lavished upon us. It's overflowing. God continues to pour forgiveness out and pour forgiveness out and pour forgiveness out. And it doesn't stop. It doesn't cease. It's lavished upon us. It is a glorious abundance, a super abundance of grace that we have in Christ because of who he is and what he's done. 
This is a marvelous truth, and this really ought to make us rejoice. It ought to make us praise God. That's Paul's entire purpose here. He wants to, to stir up uh, his heart in writing this to praise God. He wants to stir up the Ephesians' hearts to praise God. He wants to stir up your heart to praise God, and this really ought to cause us to praise God. It ought to cause us to rejoice in the grace and the mercy of God. It ought to cause us to sing out and pray. If this does not put a smile on your face, brothers and sisters, I don't know what will. Because this is is a glorious and a greatly joyful truth. But this is also a warning to us. Why is this a warning to us? Because so often, we try to earn our own redemption. Don't we? We say, yeah, Jesus, you started it all. You shed your blood on my behalf. Thank you. But I'll take it from here. I'm going to work really, really hard to earn God's favor, to earn the forgiveness I need. I sinned, so instead of of repenting of the sin, instead of going to God and confessing that and asking for forgiveness and trusting that as he promises forgiveness, I have forgiveness, I'm just, I'm gonna like work it off. I'll keep doing some good works until I think maybe that's paid God back for the sin that I committed against him. Dear people, that doesn't work. It can't work. You cannot work off the debt that you owe to God. And you don't need to. In Christ, there is forgiveness already. But that brings us over to another swing of the pendulum. If over here we're like, I have to work off all of my debt to God, then over here we might think there's abundant grace in God. There's forgiveness lavished upon me. I sinned. It's not a big deal. That too is just just a profound error. Are we supposed to continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means. God forbid. No, we are not supposed to do that. No, the, the goodness and grace of God is meant to lead us to repentance. Not saying it's not a big deal but saying, this is a big deal. I've sinned against the one who loves me so much that he gave his life for me. Lord, please forgive me. This ought to keep us uh, safely and securely in the middle of how we ought to to live our lives in humble reliance upon the grace of God, confessing our sins when we sin and, and trusting him that he is so merciful and gracious and kind to us that he most assuredly does forgive us when we come to him and ask for forgiveness. Because in Christ, we have this this definite salvation, this redemption, certain we have it now. And it's been lavished upon us. What is one of the things which Paul talks about, but it's, it's not the whole thing, actually, because Christ, his coming, his work, is not only to redeem us. Actually, that's a large part of it, and... Um, I think it's one of those things which is uh, most readily applicable to us and that we take uh, the most confidence in. But Christ came also uh, for the restoration of all things, to make all things new. And we see that in verses 9 and 10, actually, that, that Christ came uh, not only for a definite salvation of his people, but for the definite re- restoration of all things. We look in in the the second half of verse 8, but then into 9 and 10, we read that in all wisdom and insight, 
making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Paul says that that in addition to this redemption which we have in Christ, there's a mystery which has been made known to God's people. And when you hear the word mystery, maybe you start thinking of something along the lines of a a detective, right? Children, have you ever tried to figure out a mystery? You started to act like a detective. You got out a little magnifying glass and you started to look for clues. You said, well, if I, if I find enough clues then I'll be able to figure out what's going on here, I'll be able to, to discover the truth for myself through my investigation. Now that's, that's what we think of when we think mystery, something for us to figure out through our investigation. But uh, when the Bible speaks of a mystery, it's not talking about something that we can figure out. It's not talking about something that if we try really, really hard and uh, we investigate all the strange little meanings of verses in the Bible, we can, we can come to this special knowledge which exists. When the Bible talks about a mystery, it's telling us that this is something which we couldn't have figured out on our own. As hard as we tried, as many clues as we found, we couldn't figure it out on our own. It's only something uh, that, that God knows and that he has revealed to us. A mystery is something which, which God has told us about out of his great grace and kindness to us. So Paul says that there's a mystery here, something which, which God has revealed to us, the mystery of his will, God's will, his plan, that God has revealed to us in, in wisdom and insight, meaning that uh, God, who, who knows all things, and because he made all things, and the way everything works together, he decided this is, this is like the perfect way to reveal this to everyone. This is what they need to know to grow in knowledge of Christ, to grow in holiness. He says, this mystery of God's will is that God is restoring all things in Christ. All things in Christ. Verse nine, the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So what has God revealed to us? Well, part of it is that there is redemption in Christ, great forgiveness for all who come to him, but also that all things will be united in him. That's the language that Paul uses, united in him. And then as though to make sure that we really understand what he's talking about. He says, things in heaven and things on earth. What does does Paul mean by this? What is he telling us that all things are united in Christ, that this is the plan for the fullness of time? Essentially, what he's saying to us in this is that Christ is king. Christ is king now. Christ will be king uh, 500 years from now, should he tarry that long. Christ is king into uh, eternity future. Christ is king. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to the Lord Jesus Christ. He himself told us that in Matthew 28 in the Great Commission. And so because Christ is king, because he has all authority in heaven and on earth, all things in heaven and on earth are placed under his rule and his reign. 
There is not a square inch of this entire cosmos, this entire universe, which does not belong to Christ. It's all his. The grand purpose of God's plan, the redemption of his people and the restoration of all things is is essentially to set his king, Christ, the son of God, on Zion's holy hill and to call all the nations to come and kiss the son, lest he be angry. To bend the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. So we see in Psalm 2. Says, as for me, I have set my king on Zion's holy hill. The whole point of Christ's coming to earth was not just to save us, although that is a very grand and, and great portion of God's plan, gracious portion of God's plan. It wasn't just uh, to save us so that we would go to heaven when we die, although that too is wonderful and gracious of God to do. That's part of it, to be sure. But more than that is that in Christ, all things are being made new. Christ is making all things new. There's, there's restoration of the entire cosmos in the uh, purging of the effects and one day the presence of sin. He does that through the proclamation of the gospel as people are, are brought in to the church. And when will this happen? Uh, this final restoration of all things, we don't know, only the Father knows. That's what Christ says in, in Matthew. But we know that Christ is making all things new because he says, behold, I make all things new. At this point in time, we might not see that as clearly as we possibly could. On that last day when Christ returns, we will see it very, very clearly because then it will be uh, fully, totally, completely accomplished. This plan for the fullness of time, that Christ is making all things new, is is essentially the answer to uh, the petition in the Lord's Prayer when we ask, thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God answers that prayer. He's answering that prayer as, as his will is being done on earth as it is in heaven, as his will continues to be done, as he continues to build his kingdom through the proclamation of the gospel. And we ask God, that the kingdom of Satan would be destroyed and that uh, the kingdom of, of righteousness would be increased and that the glorious kingdom of Christ on that final last day would, would be manifested on this earth at Christ's coming. Because we know that there's a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, to bring all things in subjection to him as he sits at the Father's right hand in heaven. Everything is being uh, placed as a footstool to Christ's feet, all of his enemies brought to subjection. Christ reigns. Christ will reign because he is the king that God has established and has given all authority and in heaven and on earth too. And this, this is, is marvelous and glorious in our eyes. This should cause us to uh, boldly uh, live life for Christ, shouldn't it? This should cause us to, uh, to joyfully live life for Christ. We might not see the fullness of all of these things. I think every single one of us probably cries out, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We want him to return, uh, even now if possible. 
Not because we want to escape this world necessarily, but because how, how amazing would it be to be caught up together with him in the air and to, to see him as he is right now. So we may not see the fullness of this, but we know that it's going to happen. And we know that he's, he's working all things according to his will, that he will bring all of these things to pass, uniting all things in him at the appointed time, the, the set day that God has established. So this should cause us to live boldly. It should cause us to live joyfully should cause us to live uh, in humility and patience uh, and expectation as we pray that the Lord Jesus would, would return. We should seek to, to live to his glory. Our redemption and creation's restoration is all taking place for the express purpose of exalting Christ, who then exalts the Father. So at that final day, when all things are finally all united in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth, when that, that kingdom is, is handed to Christ, he's going to hand it all back to his Father. And our triune God is going to be greatly glorified in that work which Christ has accomplished through his mediatorial uh, work as our Redeemer. <clears throat> What do, we, what do we do with this? Well, I said we should live joyfully, boldly, expectantly. How, how do we do this? How do we, how do we live joyfully in light of, well, Christ is coming back one day, but, but when? Well, we can see even now the, the glimpses of his rule and reign, can't we? We have hard days, we have hard times. We have low points in our life, but at the end of the day, we can always say with 100% uh, confidence, Jesus is king. King of the church, certainly. King over all things, because that's where God has placed him with all authority. And when we think about that, it puts all of our other problems in perspective, doesn't it? We say, okay, this is a very hard day. But at the end of the day, Christ still rules, Christ still reigns. Our political system is all sorts of a mess. But at the end of the day, Christ still rules, Christ still reigns. I got laid off from work. I don't know what I'm going to do, but I have a king who has all authority in heaven and on earth who loves me and redeemed me. Christ still rules. Christ still reigns. I will continue to trust in him. Easier said than done, surely. But this is why we also must ask the Lord for grace to have this kind of mindset and then in humble reliance upon the, the spirit to take hold of this mindset and, and continue to remind ourselves you have a savior who is also your king. Remember that and glorify him. We see in, in these four verses, and there's really much more here that I'm sure we could look at, but we see here the fact that there is and will be a restoration of all things. It's begun, it will be consummated one day when Christ returns. We see also that there is a definite salvation for God's people. 
That has been accomplished once and for all. We now have redemption. We now have forgiveness. We see in these four verses that there's a definite salvation because of of the work of Christ and the infinite value of his blood. We see there is in the process a restoration of all things and will finally be a restoration of all things. And this is all, again, as I said, to the glory of God. All of these things which Paul talks about in these four verses all meant to remind us of how glorious and magnificent our God is, how much he has blessed us, how worthy of praise he is. And when we don't know what to praise God for, when we struggle to praise him, we have this. So one final exhortation for you this evening before we close. If you need something to praise God for, look back to Ephesians 1 and read this doxology. Think of all which God has done, all which God is doing, all which God will do, as it's spoken of here, and use this, the word of God, given to you to encourage you to praise him as he so greatly deserves. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for this word. We, We thank you, Lord, for presenting to us once more this great truth of the redemption which we have in Christ uh, through his blood. Lord, this is, this is a great redemption. This is a glorious redemption that we should have forgiveness of, of all of our sins through Jesus. It's amazing. Lord, you are amazing. We thank you and we praise you for it. We thank you that Christ Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth, that he is executing his office as a king subduing us to his will and in restraining and conquering all of his and our enemies that he will come again in the fullness of time to unite all things in him uh, consummating his glorious reign and dwelling with his people through all eternity help us to keep these things in mind Lord as we seek to praise you for them we ask in Christ's name Amen